Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Tonight we're going to explore a witchcraft case that happened in Springfield in 6051. I didn't know anything about this incident until I read the book The Ruin of All Witches by Malcolm Gaskell, Life and Death in the New World. And uh, I would just want to recommend that book right from the start. If, as you listen to this story, you want to dive deeper, it really is a fabulous book. Heartbreaking and spooky and is just filled with so much extra detail than you'll get in this podcast. So it's called The Ruin of All Witches by Malcolm Gaskell. Thank you. Do you ever think twice about walking under a ladder? Or if you see a black cat crossing your path, does it... Does it occur to you that something bad might happen? Perhaps not. Because for many of us today, superstition does not really feature a great deal in our lives. Sure, some of us might cross our fingers before a significant event. Or we might even wince when someone opens an umbrella inside. But we might even scold ourselves for being silly when we do that. Maybe a little old-fashioned, even. And yet, there are some whose very lives become determined by these superstitions. Entire communities who place a dark and deadly meaning into the most random and natural occurrences. Tonight, I'm going to take you to the frontier town of Springfield, Massachusetts, and the year is 1651. Strange things are starting to occur. Livestock are dying, crops are struggling, and food is beginning to spoil. Locals are even having strange seizures at night. As they try to sleep, they are haunted by terrifying nightmares. And then the children of the village begin to die. Are they just going through some terrible season, or might this be the work of a witch? I'm Peter Laws, and tonight on Frightful, we drift back to the 17th century, to a town that becomes so gripped with suspicion and fear They will go to any lengths to keep the evil at bay. This is the little-known story of Hugh and Mary Parsons, the witches of Springfield. As I speak to you now, I'm in England, and I'm standing in a forest right now, near my house. I'm alone and the trees are swaying around me. It's a very typically chilly British breeze. It's not a particularly large wood that I'm in. And in fact, it's not a particularly large country. But as you'll hear tonight, it's astonishing what can grow from something so small. Britain is a vivid example of that. In the 16th century, this small country began to build an empire, entering foreign lands and setting up colonies with a view to extend British rule, power and customs They call it colonialism, and it was often done at the expense of the indigenous people of those countries. The British were incredibly ambitious at this, and over many years they were able to take hold of places like Australia, New Zealand, Asia, Africa, 
1922, the British Empire was the largest the world had ever seen, with around a quarter of the Earth's land being under British rule. But back in the 17th century, one of the most significant colonies was also one of the first, when the British set up their home in North America, which at the time they called the New World. And they found a particular area that was really rather similar to Britain back home, with a very similar landscape of hills and forests and trickling rivers. And so they called this place New England. But even though this felt and looked like home, these English settlers were thousands of miles from their home country in a strange new world. Think of how big a country like America is. And so these settlers are building homes by the sea and they can look across the Atlantic and think about their home country thousands of miles away. And yet as they turn, as the night draws in, they see a mass of wilderness, the undiscovered and colossal country of America. What was beyond those trees? They called it a time of hope of building this new world, but it was also a time of fear and dread and suspicion that there might be eyes in those woods watching them. Our story tonight takes place in one of those settlements, a place called Springfield in Massachusetts, which is about 100 miles west of Boston. So the people of Springfield were living just that bit closer to the vast and mysterious wild of America, and it wouldn't take long for their old folk tales and fears of the supernatural to start giving the impression that as they slept in this new world, the devil might be out there waiting to creep into their village at night and to tempt and entice and corrupt even the most God-fearing. Our story really centers around a woman, a woman called Mary, whose maiden name was probably Reed. She was born in 1610 in a place called the Welsh Marches. This is a loose and wild rural area along the border between England and Wales. It was a place of legends and folklore and superstition. By 1627, Mary was 17, and it was then that she married a local Catholic called David Lewis. She and him would clash over religion because Mary wasn't Catholic, she was Protestant. But it didn't matter much at the end anyway because sometime in the late 1630s, Lewis left her. Perhaps it was because they hadn't conceived a child in that decade of marriage. Mary tried to find David. She went to great lengths to search for him, but clearly he did not want to be with her and she gave up trying to find him. She turned to the church for solace and support and was particularly impressed by a preacher and evangelist called William Roth. Roth was thought to have power over evil. At one point, he was preaching to a crowd when he claimed he could see a demonic figure approaching the people. He called it out and said, There is the devil's servant coming to disturb the service of God. And Roth was so anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit that this malevolent figure stumbled and ran away in fear. Perhaps it was because Mary had ambition or hopes of a new life, or maybe she simply wanted to get away from the pain of a failed marriage. But when she started to hear that people were answering the call of the British Empire to leave Wales and head out 
to the new world in America, she decided this was her calling. And in the spring of 1640, she made an epic journey from her home, walking for hours and hours with a little packed bundle so that she might board the boat to America from a Bristol harbour. But there were people at the dock who knew her and her history. They said that it wouldn't be right for a married woman to leave the country unless she knew for certain that her husband was truly unfindable. And so, dejected, Mary headed home again. She must have been worried because as the weeks passed, there were fewer and fewer boats leaving for America. Might she miss her chance? Well, it was Roth, Reverend Roth, who came to her aid. He was able to set up a home and a job for her over in New England. And after waiting for six weeks, it was decided that her husband was either dead or he really had truly abandoned her. And so she returned to Bristol. And once again, she walked those wooden boards of the dock and looked up at the high-masted sailing ship rocking in the water. She took a breath and stepped up to the boat. And this time, they did not turn her away. She crossed the gangplank and she stepped aboard. And her foot had lifted from the touch of England. And now the ship sailed. She watched her home country dwindling in the distance. And she would now think of this as the old world. She had a heart of both trepidation and hope for what awaited her in the new world. But she had no idea what horrors were over there on the other side of that vast sea. It was a long and challenging voyage, and such transatlantic crossings at the time could take anything from five weeks to twenty, depending on the conditions. That's almost half a year at sea. They would have to brave the elements, but also the risk of pirate ships looking to attack and plunder a ship filled with the most treasured possessions of its passengers. Superstitions even took place at sea, with the crew looking for seabirds as a sign of good luck, of red-hot horseshoes nailed to the mast as a form of protection. Historian Malcolm Gaskell wrote a book on the Springfield case called The Ruin of All Witches. It's a fabulous book, and it's what tonight's story is based on. Gaskell says that the fear of witches even existed on the ships themselves. If there was a run of illness or bad weather or misfortune, the crew or passengers might just turn to one another and accuse them of witchcraft. And rather than burn them at the stake or hang them, they'd simply throw the suspected witch overboard or hack them to death on the deck with an axe. Finally, after their epic, stressful, and deeply uncomfortable voyage, the crew spotted land. Boston Harbour was before them, and the vast new country beyond it. And Mary Lewis put her feet on solid ground, America. And she'd made her way south to Dorchester, and then she headed inland, traveling for five days to the town of Springfield. The year was 1641 when Mary set her eyes on what would become her permanent home. With a mere 45 residents, the town was much smaller than the bustling centres of Boston or Dorchester. But this was where a home and work had been arranged for her, so she made her way to the Pynchon household, where she would live and work as a maid. She settled into her humble quarters, unpacked her things, and started to do her work. She got to know people. And after a few months, she had begun to settle into her new life, and she was encouraged by how similar it was to England in many ways. 
from the landscape to the fact that everyone around her was from England or Wales and dressed in similar fashions to what she was used to. And every Sunday and Thursday, she'd be sat in the pew at church, listening closely to the sermons of the pastor. And her life carried on like this for three years, with her working as a maid, attending the church, and trying to prove herself as a valued member of the community, even if she was unmarried and without children. And yet there would always be that sense of spiritual danger, particularly from the Native American Indians who seemed to have a religious practice and worldview that was very different to the Christian British. Even Mary herself started to assume that the Indians were in some sort of communion with the devil. But as Gaskell points out, the real seeds for Mary's fate were not so much sown by the Native Americans. It was an older problem than that. As the years went by, their wilderness pioneer spirit was starting to hit the same old problems seen in the old world. As the colonies grew bigger and more prosperous, so did competition between them. And with that came jealousies and rivalries and suspicions of others. In the Puritan colonies, it was this sort of rivalry and division that would become the most potent soil from which the witch hunts would grow. In mid-1645, Mary's life was to change dramatically, and the change came to her on one of the ships. By then, a steady stream of newcomers were arriving in Springfield, having endured the same long journey that she had. And on one of those ships that year came a man who caught Mary's eye. His name was Hugh Parsons. And back in the old world, he had been a bricklayer, a role that he hoped would be in demand in America, where the British were building and expanding their towns and villages. The history records aren't clear on how Hugh and Mary got together, but Gaskell says that the records show that on Monday the 2nd of June 1645, Mary had a meeting with the founder and leader of Springfield, William Pynchon. In it, she shared her story of being mistreated and abandoned by her husband back in Wales, and how after seven years of abandonment, she would like to be free to marry again. Pynchon consulted the deputy governor of Massachusetts and the decision went before a committee. Mary had to wait in Springfield to see what their answer would be. Weeks went by, and then months. And by September of that year, Mary went to see Pynchon again to see if there'd been any news. And she shared a sense of urgency this time because she admitted she'd started to become acquainted with this Hugh Parsons a man she saw as a potential husband. Gaskell suggested that Mary may have been even pregnant with Hugh's child at this point, which would, of course, hasten the decision process considerably. Whatever the case, in October of that year, four months after she made her initial request, Mary was pronounced to be a single woman and that she was free to go ahead and marry Hugh Parsons. And they were married on Monday, the 27th of October, 1645 with a small celebration in Springfield that evening. And they started their life together in a house that was built at the very furthest edge of town, closer than most, to this vast wilderness of the mysterious and always lurking new world. A month into the marriage and Mary had news to share with friends and neighbours. She was indeed expecting a child. 
He was pressing on with his bricklaying, but he was frustrated. Because despite making money from it, a lot of it vanished to pay back a debt to William Pynchon, who had offered money to help set them up in their new home. And so times were hard, with Hugh constantly having to mend and make do with clothes and equipment that he couldn't afford to upgrade or replace. And now Mary had a baby on the way, which meant another mouth to feed. And the stress of it all started to affect the marriage. The different communities themselves were facing stress too when the challenges of this new pioneer life would start to strain the relationships between towns and villages. The snow came and started to cover Springfield in December of 1645. This was just two months after Hugh and Mary were married and the authorities in Dorchester were starting to pass emergency legislation that would deal with the growing clashes and conflicts between neighbours but there were also troubling omens at the time, too. For example, in Boston, a huge rainbow formed in the sky, but it was said to be surrounded by weird, bright lights. Nobody knew what it could be, and so they took it as a possible warning from God. And then, in Ipswich, a calf had been born with three heads then reports started coming in from the old world, back across the ocean in England, where there was talk of witches. Witchcraft was spreading across the old English counties, with over 200 men and women arrested for the crime of witchcraft. And the wild testimonies and confessions from the English courtrooms were travelling across the Atlantic, with every new settler in America hearing of them. Back in the old country, there were tales of neighbours being bewitched and plagued with evil dreams. Some suspects even openly admitted in court to entertaining familiar spirits, that is, demons that would come to their house at night in the form of pigs and goats and cats or even mice, and how some of these suspects would allow these animals to suckle from their nipples as a way of feeding the dark spirits. And if the people of Springfield thought these tales of sorcery were thousands of miles away, well, they were in for a shock. Because in time, the whispered rumours in town was that the witches had arrived in America now, in the plantations of Connecticut and New Haven, where tales of heresy, bestiality and rape were spreading through the town, all bound up with the talk of dark sorcery. Then... There was an outbreak of a disease which may have been marsh fever, but it killed some of the children in the community. And in the summer of 1646, the cornfields they had planted were devoured by multitudes of caterpillars. And people started to wonder, could it be a curse or was God angry with them for some reason? of all of this, as August rolled around, on a Friday, Mary Parsons went into labour, and the daughter of Mary and Hugh was born. They called her Hannah, and perhaps those early months had some joy in them. But just as 1646 was reaching an end, records say 
that two suns were witnessed in the sky over New England, and it was seen by many as a sign of the end times. The following year, when Hannah was 10 months old, news came from Hartford that a woman called Alice Young had been hanged as a witch. Bear in mind, Hartford was only 30 miles down the river from Springfield. In 1647, Mary told Hugh the news that she was pregnant again, yet another mouth to feed. Only this time, Mary started to feel unwell with it, not just physically, but mentally. She was becoming listless and anxious about life. Yet Hugh was still pushing her to keep working and tending the house. After all, he was desperately working to try and pay off his debts, and he didn't want to have to do the household chores too. Yet he was becoming cruel to Mary. He was starting to see her as lazy. Gaskell says that one night he came home to find Mary sleeping in bed, and so he deliberately doused the fire in the hearth, and then he ripped off her blanket just to make her cold. He even threw a dish on the floor and demanded that she picked it up on all fours. Life was getting very bleak and miserable in the Parsons household. And for some reason, Hugh started to randomly turn up at neighbors' houses. He'd do this quite often, without any particular reason. The neighbors would chat to him and try to be friendly, but they started to get the impression that Hugh was spying on their homes with a sort of envy of the things they had. At one point, during a snowy April, Hugh knocked unannounced on the door of Henry Smith. And Hugh asked if he could do some plowing work for him to get some extra money. Smith said he didn't have any need of extra plowing. And so Hugh left that house seething with rage and keen for revenge on Smith. And then by June the 8th, Mary and Hugh's baby was born, Samuel Parsons. And to help support the family, Hugh decided that they would have to take lodgers into the house. Anthony and Sarah Dorchester moved into the home and both quickly started to see just how cruel he was to his wife Mary. And talk of the supernatural was never too far away. For example, a ghost ship was sighted out at New Haven and standing on the deck under the masts was a phantom pointing out to the sea with a sword. Strange and loudly buzzing brown flies were also seen crawling out of the ground. But more troubling was the news that over in Boston on June the 14th, 1648, a midwife called Margaret Jones had been hanged for witchcraft. It was said that she could strike people with a terrible illness just by touching them. And when she was body searched, the investigators found, quote, an apparent teat in her secret parts as fresh as if it had been newly sucked, end quote. Despite this woman's denials of witchery, she was hanged. News of witches both in England and in New England were still being passed through the town and Mary became transfixed with these stories, often talking to her neighbours about the devil's schemes. And that was precisely the point. People were becoming so paranoid about the devil that they could see his schemes in anything and everything. Like when Hugh had an argument with a pregnant neighbour called Blanche Badortha. And in that spat, he said something in passing like... I'll remember you. But she and her neighbors were later deeply worried. What did he mean by that phrase? Was Hugh going to cast a spell on her? 
She thought that may well be the case when one night, soon after the argument took place, she was alone in her dark house when she saw a strange light moving through the home. A month later, Blanche was close to her baby being born when she woke up with an intense pain that started underneath her left breast and spread across her shoulder and her neck. She was discovered, lying in agony. And though she recovered, she was convinced this was the work of Hugh Parsons remembering her after the argument. And then, just a couple of doors down from Blanche, a man called William Branch had a similar painful visitation. On a spring night in 1649, he woke his wife, saying that the room had just filled with light, and from it came an apparition of a small red-faced boy. The boy came towards him, touched his chin, and then Branch said he felt a sudden pain down his back like he was being scalded with boiling water. And as it happened, he heard a voice saying, It is done. It is done. Hugh visited a woman called Sarah Edwards, and he told her that she owed him money and that he wanted to be paid in milk from the Edwards cow. She refused, and the next time she milked that cow, it only produced a mere two pints rather than the normal six, and the milk had a tinge of blood in it. Sarah stared at it and had a sense of why this had happened. Witchcraft had reached Springfield, and it was coming potentially through Hugh Parsons. And so Sarah and her husband went to the town leader to tell him about the incident. And so rumours about Hugh started to gather momentum in the community. And while this was all happening, Mary Parsons was still obsessed with witches. At one point, she even accused a local woman called Mercy Marshfield of being a witch. And this led Mary to be accused of slander. And she was told that she and Mercy would have to appear in court at a defamation trial. Yet just before this happened, Mary spoke to her neighbor, John Matthews. And she didn't talk to him about Mercy being a witch. But rather Mary explained that Hugh, her husband, was a witch. Join me next time for the second and final part of this two-part edition of Frightful, where we see the fear of witches grow out of control in Springfield. And at the center of it all, a tragic marriage where love is turned to suspicion and hope to despair. That's next time on Frightful. I'm Peter Laws, and you've been listening to the story of Mary and Hugh Parsons, the witches of Springfield. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.